Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And Father, you have chosen to reveal yourself to your creatures. Father, we have general revelation in all that you have made, and it speaks to your glory and your power and your wisdom and your architecting uh, amazement. Father, we stand in awe of all that you have made. It speaks of your glory. It screams of your glory as we learn in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech and there's not a language on earth in which their voice is not heard. But Father, more specifically and importantly, you have given us special revelation in your word. You have revealed yourself to us in 66 books. We praise you for this special revelation. Father, your people stake all of our hope and faith in what you have revealed to us. Father, your word speaks to us clearly about your son, Jesus. What he has done, Father, what you have sent him to do, his teaching, his actions. And Father, as we learn from the writer of Hebrews that in these last days, you have spoken to us most clearly through your son. You have revealed yourself to us through Jesus. And we thank you that we have the words of Jesus, the deeds of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the substitutionary accomplishment of Jesus for those who would trust in him. We pray that now as we jump into Mark chapter 2, Jesus would be on full display for who he truly is, the King and Savior of the world. Father, help us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to go through Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. And I'm thankful that I get to preach this section of Scripture because it contains two of my absolute favorite stories in the whole Bible. I have a lot, but these are two of them. And we're going to look at these two stories in three different ways. And the text clearly lays these three ways out. A scandalous declaration. Two, a vindication of the declaration. And number three, an application of the declaration. Again, a scandalous declaration, a vindication of the declaration, and an application of the declaration. First, we will engage uh, verses one to seven through the lens of a scandalous declaration. So I'll read verses one to seven, and you can read along on the screen with me. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? A scandalous declaration. That declaration being, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in verse 1, we see that Jesus returns to Capernaum after some days. Well, what was happening that he had to return? Well, you remember at the end of Mark 1 from last week, he healed a leper. And he told this leper, look, don't tell anyone what has happened to you. And the reason he said that was because he wanted to continue his preaching ministry. But instead of this healed leper, this cleansed leper, this man with a skin disease that was causing him to be ritually unclean and apart from the people of God and apart from the worship, he goes out and he tells everyone. 
And the crowds flock because of this news to Jesus. And he can no longer speak freely. In fact, this is what Mark 145 says. But he, Jesus, went out and began to, I'm sorry, this is the leper. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus had to leave and go out to desolate places. And even in those desolate places, people were still flocking to him. And even though we like to see Jesus, especially in the book of Mark, as as the miracle worker, as the exerciser, as the one who is performing signs and wonders, his mission is stated clearly in chapter 1, verses 38 to 39. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus said, I came to preach. I came to share the good news. I came to talk about the kingdom of God, and the king of that kingdom is now at hand. It's time to repent and believe. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And this was Jesus' ministry. So after being out in the wilderness and encountering crowds there, he comes to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it's on the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Andrew and Peter and James and John were from. In fact, Peter has his house there along with Andrew. And we learned from chapter one that Jesus went into his house and Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And so Jesus heals her and she gets up and she begins to wait on them. And this probably is home for Jesus. Peter's home is now probably for this season, Jesus' home. And I think that in verse 1 here, it was reported that he was at home means he was at Peter's house in Capernaum. And Peter's house is right on the sea, for he and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. And so right on the sea there, on the Sea of Galilee, in this little town of Capernaum, Jesus called home temporarily. It is still true that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This was not his home. It was Peter and Andrew's home, but he was allowed to stay there. And so in that sense, it was his home. And many, verse 2, many were gathered together. How many? So that there was no more room, not even at the door. So, So imagine this scene. You have this little house in this little fishing village, a significant fishing village, but little nonetheless. And here's this home that was fairly large, enough to have Jesus and Andrew and Peter and James and John and Peter's wife and Peter's mother and, and, a, and, a, and a crowd. It had to be somewhat large, but the house is so packed that Jesus has to uh, kind of huddle in the middle, I imagine, and all these people around him, and, he, and he's probably teaching in a circle, looking, connecting with eyes, and there's people in the windows looking in, and there's people crowded at the door, a shoulder upon hands, upon necks, and stretched necks, and people are just dying to get a hearing of this teaching. Because everywhere that Jesus went, amazing things happened. These people have never heard anything like this or have seen anything like this. And so Jesus was like a magnet, just drawing people to himself with his authoritative teaching and miraculous deeds. So there's no room. There's not even room at the door. You can't come in if you wanted to. Just bodies everywhere, a wall of bodies, a human wall, if you will. Everyone just listening trying to hear, trying to see this prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 18. And he was preaching the word to them. I love it. So Jesus was preaching. What was he doing in Peter's home here? He was preaching the word. He's probably expounding the Old Testament and speaking with authority as he did on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. The scribes say this, I say. And he's teaching the Old Testament with authority, not like the scribes 
and the Pharisees. And verse 3, and they came. Who is the they? Well, at the end of verse 3, four men. Four men come, and they're coming with someone. Who is it? A paralytic. And they came, bringing to him, Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. A, A paralytic was one who was paralyzed, not able to move. Clearly, if he's being carried by four men, he doesn't have mobility. So he's on some kind of a stretcher. Probably each guy has a hand on the, on the corners of the stretcher. And they're bringing him. And they come to the house where he is, Peter's house. And there's a wall of human bodies. And they can't get in. And they can't get their friend, this paralyzed man, to Jesus. And it's clear what they want. They want him to cause their friend to be unparalyzed to be healed. And so they see this obstacle. We can't get to him because the door's all blocked up and the windows are all blocked up. So they take an alternative route. Often the homes would have uh, a staircase going up top so you could go onto the roof. And so this is what they do. And they, verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Now, Now let's stop for just a second. Imagine this. You're in Peter's house, and Jesus is teaching in the middle of the house, and all of a sudden, particles of roof start falling from the ceiling. And, and, and people are going to notice this, and at first, it'll be like, what, what's going on? And, and so they're a bit distracted from Jesus' teaching, but then large chunks start to fall. Now, we don't know how they did this. Maybe these guys were also fishermen, and so they had their fisher knives. Maybe they're sawing through the roof. Maybe they're pulling it up layer by layer because it was made of organic material that you could peel the layers off. We don't know how. But eventually, a hand comes through, and, and fingers come through. And could you imagine being Peter? Because he either bought this house, or he made this house. And so he's like, yo, my roof. <laughs> What are, you do- what are you doing, right? That would be my response. You know, when, when, when often water comes through my ceiling in my basement because, you know, my kids are not too careful in the bathroom right above, uh, I'm always like, yo! And I, and I run upstairs to address the problem. Is the sink clogged? Did we not put the shower curtain inside the shower and so all the water is flowing out? What's going on? And so we can imagine that Peter is, is what is happening right now? to my house. And Jesus, I can imagine either being informed by the Holy Spirit of what's going on or just this is the norm for him at this point, right? Like all these people come to him from every corner. And so he is now used to this unusualness. He's just, this is the norm for Jesus. So either he steps back and he looks and he waits. Maybe a smile is cracking on his face as he sees Peter's uh, irritation, maybe, maybe he, he put a hand on Peter's shoulder and said, Peter, relax, relax. This is of God. We don't know. But, but whatever the case, clearly at this point, everyone is not focused on Jesus, but they are focused on what is happening up here on the ceiling. And somehow this man, this paralyzed man, is let down through the roof in front of everyone. And everyone's gaze is fixed on Jesus and this paralyzed man. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. What's interesting here is, Jesus sees the faith of not only the four men, but the faith of the paralytic. What does this mean? Well, this means that their trust that Jesus could do something about this man's condition is on full display because look at the actions that they've taken. I think of James in his letter when he says, you say you have faith, I will show you my faith by my deeds. And this is what's happening here. These men are visibly displaying their trust that Jesus can do something about this paralyzed man. 
Now, just a, a little nuance for some of you who, who get hung up uh, on, on faith and healing and faith healing. Uh, what's not happening here is Jesus is not looking at their capacity or their uh, fullness of faith and then responding to the measure of faith they have. So you look at your cell phone, and maybe on yours, like mine, it says you're at 75%. So they're not, Jesus is not looking at these five men here, and he sees their faith level is at 85%, and he's like, I could do something with this. But if they were at 50%, he's like, we got to get it up to 75, or I, I, I have no power here to do anything. Do you see the difference? The, the power of Jesus to heal or to do whatever he wants has nothing to do with you or I and our level of faith. And that's beautiful. What is being displayed here is these men believe that Jesus could do something. So their faith is not curved in on themselves. Jesus is not rewarding their belief, and now he's going to give their strength of belief a healing. No, he, their faith is in him. You can do something. Their faith is not boomeranging back in on themselves. It's going out and it's landing on the person of Jesus. And that's what he means by, I can see the faith. And Jesus saw their faith. He he saw that they trusted in him, that he could do something about this. And so in response, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? A scandalous declaration. Your sins are forgiven. And this, to them, was outrageous. And notice that they say this in their hearts. questioning in their hearts, end of verse 6. Now, in 2015, I was in Cleveland, Ohio, at a conference at Alistair Begg's church called the Basics Conference, and Tim Keller was there preaching. And he was preaching on this text. And I remember him talking about this point, and I'm going to talk about it. Jesus says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, yet he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't repent. He doesn't, Jesus just, without him even doing the first step, Jesus declares his sins forgiven. What's up with that? How how do we explain that? And Tim Keller's answer, I think, was brilliant and right. He said that Jesus in the same way he was able to understand what was going on in the the scribe's heart, why does this man speak like this? He was also able to look into this paralytic's heart and see that he desired to be cleansed, that he desired to be washed, that he desired to have his sins forgiven, that he was repentant in his heart. And so Jesus sees into this man's soul And he knows that the greater need is his sin problem. So let's do an exercise here. Let's imagine that Jesus simply said, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man in amazement stands up and the amazement of the crowd and and he just walks out. But no sins forgiven. See, Jesus would have actually been very... I don't want to say cruel because Jesus can't be cruel. It's the wrong word. Jesus would not have met his greatest need. Because even though he was paralyzed, the paralyzation was only going to last for so long and then he was going to be in the grave. And his greater need than to walk and to have full use of his body was to have all of his sins forgiven Temporary needs are important. Healing of the body is important. Feeding the hungry is important. But friends, if it doesn't lead to the forgiveness of sins, we have not done the most good 
to people, and Jesus would have not, if you will, done the most good to this guy. The most good Jesus could have done to him was to say, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is the very thing he did. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus is doing many things here. He's not just doing one thing. He's not just forgiving this man's sins. He's claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. Now, now that might go by very quickly as you read, but, but I've been a pastor for a long time. I've been a pastor of Eternal City Church for over five years, and I was a pastor on a team of, of pastors prior to that for four or five years too. And some of the hardest things to pastor people through is affairs. Affairs. And so imagine you're doing pastoral counseling, and you're sitting with the husband and the wife, and let's just say that the husband is the one who was cheating. And so he is, he is very repentant. He is, I'm so sorry. And the wife is just angry and unforgiving. And how dare you? How could you? Now imagine that I looked at that man in that moment and said, adulterer, I forgive you. That wife would look at me and say, who do you think you are? He didn't sin against you. He sinned against me. Now you understand what Jesus is doing here. Son, your sins are forgiven. In other words, I'm the offended party, is what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus, if he's going to forgive the man's sins, in order to forgive someone, the offense has to be against you. Therefore, Jesus was saying, this man's sins were all against me. And because they were against Jesus, he had the authority to say, son, your sins are forgiven. So he's forgiving his sins, but he's also declaring to have the authority because of being the one sinned against to forgive the sins. But in addition Here's a third thing Jesus is doing. Look at the text. Some of the scribes, verse 6, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. They are theologically on point. The only one who can look at someone in the totality of their offense to God and say, your sins are forgiven is God. And so what was Jesus doing? He was declaring to be God. He was declaring to be God. Now, now these scribes were the Bible scholars of the day, as we learned last week. These were the ones who studied the scriptures. They were the, the scholars who could quote the scholars. And so they know only God can forgive sins. This man in front of me is blaspheming. He is speaking against God in an offensive way by claiming an attribute of God. But Jesus, making this scandalous declaration, is next vindicated. So let's go to our second point. The vindication of the declaration. Verses 8 to 12. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. So again, he, he's peering into their hearts. He's reading their mail. Now, we don't know for sure if this was Jesus in his godness or if this was the Holy Spirit revealing to Jesus their thoughts. I like to lean the Holy Spirit revealing to Jesus what they were thinking. But it doesn't much matter. He says to them, reading their thoughts, why do you question these things in your hearts? So you can imagine that he looks right at these scribes who were having these thoughts. Right in the eye. And he says to them, I'm sure to their shock, if the eyes aren't wide enough because the guy just dropped through the ceiling, and if the eyes aren't wide enough because he just said, your sins are forgiven, now the eyes of these scribes are going to be wide because he says, oh yeah, this is what you're thinking, and he makes it public. He makes their thoughts public. Why do you question these things in your heart? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? 
And so he answers their question that's not been verbalized. And it's a good question, is it not? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, let's think through this question for just a second. In the New Testament, we are told that some people, Corinthians 12, Romans 12, have gifts of healing. And so if you have gifts of healing, sometimes you're able to pray for someone and they actually get healed. This happens with um, John and Peter in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. There's, there's the man crippled at the gate of the temple and, and he's asking for money and silver gold and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. Get up and walk. And so, you know, Peter pulls him up and he's healed. So if you had healing gifts like that, like Peter had at that moment, or like Paul was able to raise people from the dead, then it's pretty easy for you to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But for Jesus to be able to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, it would cost him everything. His very life. It would cost him losing the very life that he is the author of. The one who created life itself became a human living being. He would lose his life in order to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. And so the answer to the question is, it was way harder for Jesus to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Though, at quick glance, it looks like an easy thing to say. Yeah, your sins are forgiven. No, but because of what it cost Jesus to say that and it actually be true, it was much harder to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's make some application for us in this moment. For Jesus to say to you and I, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you realize that cost him his very life as a human being. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus gave it all. Jesus paid it all. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last on the cross. Under the just wrath of God that would have taken forever for me and for you to live out in hell. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And so it was much harder for him to say to you and to say to me, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And now Jesus is going to vindicate his claim, vindicate his claim to forgive sins. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stop there for a second. Jesus is going to back up his words with action. And they're going to know that his words have weight by his deeds. You want to see authority here? Well, let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 that speaks of the Son of, of Man being given an everlasting kingdom to rule. And so that you know that that person, me, the Son of Man, has been given authority on earth and has authority on earth to forgive sins. Verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, this is going to be a sign, right? This is what it says. But, verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now he's going to say, this is going to point to that. My healing of this man before you all is going to be a sign that points beyond itself to my claim to be able to forgive sins. So that you may know. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we, we've never seen anything like this. Now, when you follow Jesus throughout this gospel, this is the flavor. I mean, amazing, miraculous things are happening surrounding this man constantly. And here, let, let's, so let's imagine this. Jesus says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. And, and people are freaking out in their heads. And then he says, okay. I know what you're thinking, but so that you know that I have authority to say that, watch this. Rise. Take up your bed and go. And, and the guy who, who knows how long he's been paralyzed, but clearly up until this second, he could not move. He gets up and eyes widen. And he rolls up his mat and the crowd parts like the Red Sea and he walks right out. And everyone is wide-eyed, amazed, and they're like, praise God, we have never seen anything like this. This is amazing. This is amazing. And so here Jesus is making a claim that causes outrage, at least in the heart of these scribes. He then vindicates his claim by healing this man, and then Jumping into verses 15 to 17, what we have is an application of this declaration. An application of this declaration. He went out again beside the sea. Now remember, he's in Capernaum. Peter is a fisherman. He lives by the sea. And so all he has to do is basically go out of the house, and he's right there by the sea. And so he goes out. And he's by the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him. And all the crowd was coming to him. So Jesus, again, just like in Peter's house, just like in the desolate places in the wilderness, now he goes out by the sea and crowds are just mobbing him. This is the life of Jesus. And so what does he do in response to the crowd? He does what he said he came to do in chapter 1. He teaches them. I must preach to these other towns also. And so he teaches You've heard it was said, but I say. You've read uh, Exodus like this, but I say that this is the actual interpretation. And he's teaching them. You want to honor God? Do this. Don't do this. And so he's teaching. And he leaves this teaching in verse 14. He passes by and sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he says, follow me. Now, here's what was the deal with tax collectors. Many different kinds of tax collectors. But in this little section of Roman-ruled territory, Capernaum, Levi was more than likely kind of like a customs tax guy. right? So if you want to go on the turnpike, um, you must pay a toll to get on. And depending on where you get off, it's either heftier or lesser. But if you go all the way to Philly or New Jersey from Pittsburgh, you're paying a lot of money. And so ships that would come in to Capernaum would be taxed. Fish that would be brought in from the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, this fishing village, would be taxed. All of the movement of economics would be taxed by Rome through one who would bid on the region and what their bidding looked like was, hey, Rome, I can get you this much money. And then another tax bidder would say, well, I could get you this much money. And Levi was the one who won this area. And the way they would make their money is they would take extra. And they were allowed to take extra by Rome. And they had the force of Rome behind them to take more. And so... Think about what's happening here. This is a Jewish man, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and he is keeping his own people oppressed by Rome by collecting funds to fund the government and to fund the Roman guard and to fund the Roman criminal justice system that would keep the Jews in line and that would ultimately put Jesus on a cross. So these men 
were seen as traitors to their own people. They were seen as outcasts. They were not allowed to enter into the synagogue worship or the temple worship. They were unclean. They were shady. And they were, if you will, thugs and outlaws. And if they themselves were not thugs and outlaws, they had a whole team behind them of thugs and outlaws who would break legs and break fingers and make threats, and they would get their money. They would get their money. And so Levi is not loved probably by Peter and Andrew, by James and John. Why? Because he is collecting money on every fish they catch. So we can assume, we don't know, but we can assume that Levi does not probably have a favorable relationship with Peter, Andrew, James, and John being in their village and them probably having to make deals with him. Probably. But Jesus, ignoring all the cultural no-nos, all the taboos, looks at him sitting there at the tax booth and says, you, follow me. You, Levi, follow me. And amazingly, verse 14, he rose and followed him. He rose and followed him. Now, I love the account in Luke. Luke 5, 28 says it a little more descriptively. Listen to this. And leaving everything, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, I, I don't remember what commentator pointed this out, but I think it's significant. Peter and Andrew and James and John, they left their fishing business. But if this whole thing with Jesus didn't go well, they could go back. They could go back. But not Levi. Once you leave that post, another bidder is, boom, right in there to take your spot. And you're out. This cost Levi everything to follow Jesus. That's what the text says in Luke 5, 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I love this because it is a picture of this parable that Jesus tells in the other gospels of, of finding a treasure. You remember that parable, don't you? That there's a man wandering in a field and he, he stumbles upon something in the field and he looks down and there's, there's a box or something sticking out of the dirt a little bit and he brushes it off a little bit and he's like, huh, and he opens up the chest and it's full of wealth, gold coins and riches. And quickly he buries the chest, covers it up, makes sure no one sees, and then he goes and buys that field. In joy, he liquidates everything he has in order to buy that field. And this is likened to Levi. Because Levi, seeing a greater treasure in Jesus, liquidates everything. And follows Jesus. And I love that parable Jesus tells because he says in his joy he went and liquidated everything. I could just imagine Levi with a big smile on his face. And this shows not only, not only the compellingness of Jesus, but his authority to say, you follow me. And I could just see Levi with a big smile on his face getting up and following Jesus. And let's look what happens next. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, so we can imagine that Levi probably has his house in Capernaum as well. It's probably a large house because he was a tax gatherer and tax gatherers were, were very wealthy. Imagine Zacchaeus, whom Jesus uh, forgives and heals and he promises to pay back four times what he owes anyone that he's extorted. And so Matt, Levi here probably has a, a nice house. And he has invited all of his buddies, all of his crew. And remember who Levi is. His crew were not seen as outstanding moral citizens. They were not favorable people. And as he reclined at table in his house, this is Jesus, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I love this. So this is a picture of a party, of a banquet, 
and it shows the crowd that Jesus kept. I love that Jesus, when he went to start collecting disciples, did not go to those with seven PhDs and the top elites like Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. He didn't pick any scribes. He didn't pick any Pharisees. Rather, he goes to plain blue-collar fishermen and now this thug of a tax collector, and he says, you are my disciple. And Matthew, amazed that not only would Jesus receive him, but pull him into his closest associates and make him one of his disciples. He's like, friends, you need to meet this new friend of mine. And so, amazingly, they all come. And Jesus is not so concerned about what other people think as to who he's going to hang out with. So let's look at it a bit, and then we'll make some application. And the scribes and the Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees, it's translated both ways, um, meaning that not all the Pharisees were scribes. Some of the Pharisees were businessmen. Some of the Pharisees were regular people, but they were, they were orthodox and they were adherents to the Mosaic law very strictly, even tithing mint and cumin and dill and straining their drinks so they wouldn't eat an unclean animal. Very strict adherence to the law, very theologically orthodox, reformed, if you will. And there were scribes who were Pharisees as well. And so that's probably what this means. And the scribes of the Pharisees, they were scribes in the camp of the Pharisees. When they saw that he, Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're outraged again. They are scandalized again. Now, they were probably not in the dinner party because they're scandalized by the dinner party. They're probably looking from the outside in. They're looking at the party from afar saying, uh-uh, not me. I won't be seen with her. I won't be seen with him. And this classification by the scribes and the Pharisees of sinner, quote-unquote, were full of tax collectors and prostitutes and those who were unclean. They were the sinners. But they were the sinners in exclusion of the non-sinners, at least in the minds of the scribes of the Pharisees. And I would argue in the minds of many Jewish adherents to Judaism of that day. And so in their mind, they kind of had a caste system. And so there were the righteous, you had the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the, the Levites way up here, and you had the rabbis way up here. And then you had your regular folk who were synagogue worshipers, and they did the sacrifices, and they, they you know, adhered to the law as best they could. But then down here, you had the sinners, the lowest class of people. And amazingly, this is who Jesus kick it, is kicking it with. In fact, he would say, my people my people. I love it. And they are outraged by this scandal. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, for you and I, this might not be so weird because you go to the pub, you go to the bar, you know, your, your relatives are crazy people. And so you're like, I'm around the tax collectors and sinners all the time. I can't get away from them. Okay. But here's what's going on here. To eat with someone in this culture, in the Middle Eastern Jewish culture, and even today in the Middle East, it's like this. To eat with someone is to say, you are my people. It's to say, you are my associates. I fellowship with you. I partner with you. I identify with you. And so here's Jesus identifying with the lowest class of people in his day. And why does he identify with them? Because he is going to substitute himself for these very ones who recognize themselves to be in the class of sinner. Let's move on. And when Jesus heard about it, or heard it, maybe he heard the disciples because they don't go to Jesus, they go to the disciples. They say, you know, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So either the disciples said to Jesus, hey, they're, they're a little messed up, they're bent, 
They're upset because you're eating with this crowd here. Or he heard them say it. It doesn't matter. But he says to them, the scribes of the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician. This is a common proverb used both in Greek and Hebrew. It was a proverb, a common saying of the day. And so Jesus uses it. He employs it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke says it a little more clearly. He adds detail. Luke 5, 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so get the picture. In the minds of the scribes of the Pharisees, there are classes of people. And these prostitutes, these thugs for Rome, these tax collectors, they are the sinners. They are the ones who lie in wait for people's blood, the extortioners, the greedy, the swindlers, the sexually immoral, the drunkards, the swindlers, the sinners. And then in the scribes of the Pharisees' minds, you have this class of righteous people. And amazingly, Jesus says in response to their outrage, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick people. And I have not come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. What that doesn't mean is that there are righteous people and there are sinners. No, rather, there are people who know they are sinners and there are people who think they are righteous. These are the categories. And so Jesus, in a cryptic way, is saying to these scribes of the Pharisees and those who would follow in their camp, their tribe, he's saying, look, if you think you're righteous, if you think you're not a sinner, I have not come for you. I have not come to call you. I have not come to forgive you because you don't think you need forgiveness. And this is very hopeful for us who know ourselves to be in need of a Savior, is it not? This is very good news for us who continue to fail and fall and get our knees bloody and our face smashed into the ground again and again and again. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He came to call sinners to repentance. Now, the good news here is this, friends, that when Jesus calls out to you and he calls out to me to repent, he is also at the very same time saying, have faith in me and trust me. Because faith and repentance are two sides of the same exact coin. You can't exercise leaving everything as Levi did, repentance, you can't exercise that without at the same time exercising your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to receive you as a sinner. Romans 5.8 is good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. And so if you see yourself, if you know yourself to be a sinner tonight, good news, you're the person that Jesus came for. I am the person that Jesus came for. And the, 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 the good news that comes after that initial declaration of your sins can be forgiven is all of you sinners, quote unquote, your sins can be forgiven as well. Turn to me and be forgiven. This is good news. Now, to realize the impact that Jesus had on Levi you need to understand his other name. His other name is Matthew. And he is the author of the first gospel of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This man was so radically received and changed by Jesus that he writes 28 chapters to tell the world about Jesus. Talk about radical transformation. 
and talk about Jesus receiving the lowest of the low and then doing great things with them. An enduring gospel, 2,000 plus years old from this man, Levi. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And this same hope, friends, is our hope. It's our hope that Jesus will finish what he started. And he could do great things through you and I, no matter what background you came from. Maybe you come from a more scribish background. And you did everything good. We need to repent of the good we did to avoid Jesus. But maybe you're like Levi and his buddies, sinners, and you know yourself to not be right with God. There's good news for you. You can turn from all that darkness that plagues your conscience with guilt. And you can turn to the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins and be forgiven. And watch what he can do with ordinary, sinful men and women, cleansed, washed, and forgiven. He tells us, because of his authority, go and make disciples. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and you will see my kingdom expand through your efforts. And I will continue to change and transform you into the person that you have no ability to change and transform yourself into. Watch what I do with you is what Jesus is saying to you tonight, what he's saying to me tonight. And so we must, like Levi, leave everything and follow him. And let's trust him to radically change and transform us and do amazing things for the expansion of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, this scandalous declaration of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. We thank you that Jesus had the authority on earth to forgive sins, and he proved it by his miraculous powers. And Father, we thank you for the application of this declaration right in the home of Levi, the fifth disciple called in this gospel. Father, we thank you that Jesus reaches out still today, tonight, to sinners. And he calls them to follow him, to trust in him. Father, would you give grace to every person watching this, listening to this, to see themselves not as righteous, not in need of a Savior, but rather as a sinner in need of a Savior. Holy Spirit, only you can do this mighty work on the hearts and on the soul. So would you do your work? And Father, may these ones, as we who are already your children, have found you to be powerful, mighty, and willing to save. We thank you, we praise you, and now as we continue in worship, continue to meet with us, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.